Welcome back to the Mulpix podcast. Today our guest is Grigory Tikomarov. Also here today are Boya. Hello. Eric. Hi. And I'm Hannah. Greg's an assistant professor in electrical engineering and computer sciences with a background in chemistry, bioengineering, medicine, and nanotechnology. He has recently started the T-Lab at Berkeley to pursue the design and fabrication of devices with atomic precision by combining the strengths of rational top-down engineering and bottom-up biomolecular assembly. A key goal is to adopt the powerful but still proof-of-concept self-assembly approaches of DNA nanotechnology to engineer new, useful devices. Greg, hi. Oh, hello. Thanks so much for inviting me here. It's 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 an honor (laughs) to be on a podcast and talk about my favorite topic, molecular programming. Yeah, I really look forward to talking to you today. You start out more in chemistry. Uh, How did you find out about and move into molecular programming? Uh, Well, I I feel like I have always been a molecular programmer. uh, But you know, what what really got me into the field is seeing Paul Rodemund's um, (laughs) smiley face, DNA origami paper. And, you know, as a chemist, I, I really like to synthesize large, uh, beautiful molecules. And when I saw this giant molecule, I, I couldn't believe my eyes. It's like, it's it's amazing. <laughs> and, you know, ever since then, I, I, I thought that I need to join this field. <laughs> and, you know, I I had a dream to, to reprogram molecules to build new life forms <laughs> Cause, because I, I wasn't maybe middle school, early high school, I, I kind of encountered first time, <laughs> um, you know, death and sickness in the family. And I thought, why why do people have to get sick? Why do people have to die? And can we um, kind of re-engineer people using kind of more rational principles, like principles of engineering where you can you know use transistor resistor and capacitor and build very complex circuits and you understand actually what each module is doing and i thought okay i can use supermolecular chemistry to do that because you cannot really synthesize a cell but you can self-assemble a cell using non-covalent interaction such as hydrogen bonds pi pi stacking and i tried to design molecules that can self-assemble into complex structures. But it's very tedious <laughs> to try to use um, organic chemistry because you have to do a lot of synthesis and you carry out, you know, this multi-step synthesis at the end of the 20 steps. <laughs> Starting on with 100 gram, you get one milligram of compound that maybe self-assembles, maybe doesn't. <laughs> and you spend, you know, one year synth- synthesizing and then looking what you got and it doesn't work, <laughs> it works, but it makes very, very simple structures. Like I, I, I self-assembled nanotubes, not, not carbon nanotubes, but, you know, organic tubes <laughs> that assemble from six uh, ro- rosettes, uh, from rosettes, and each rosette is made of guanine and cytosine molecule linked by 60 degree angle. So kind of <laughs> be borrowed from DNA. Um, but they're still too simple. And I realized that, yeah, this is not sustainable. <laughs> And I kind of got um, frustrated, and I uh, realized that my 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 PhD is kind of a failure, and I need to join different different fields. <laughs> so I went into cancer research, <laughs> and yeah, you can say it's some kind of molecular programming too. Uh, so we 
they try to build activatable nanoparticles and, and molecules that detect and treat uh, cancer uh, based on the presence of certain enzymes that are associated with cancer. So versus traditional cancer therapy where you deliver drug everywhere and it kind of kills healthy cells too, but it kills more quickly dividing cancer cells. Instead of that, if you make it targeted, um, then then we can kill cancer. And um, and this was a very interesting research. And what I learned is that, you know, chemists uh, and bioengineer can make a huge difference in medical practice. Of course, it takes about 10 years to introduce a new drug to the market and go through all of the approvals and, you know, thousands of very beautiful ideas uh, on smart activatable drugs fail because they, they just don't pass toxicity and don't get <laughs> to preclinical stage and they fail in animals. And yeah, so it, at some point that real, I realized that I, I have to leave science <laughs> and go to industry or, or, or try to find something that is really exciting me. And then I <laughs> I, I was lucky enough to, to join uh, Lulu Chien's lab and, and she's been absolutely amazing, his advisor. And, and that's kind of um, saved me from from going um, from living academia and um, and got me again very excited about uh, molecular programming. And I realized that 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 is actually the way to to build complex uh, architectures um, like new life forms. <laughs> and 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 what I'm doing right now in the lab that may, maybe not necessarily. <laughs> that far-fetched as a building new life forms. <laughs> it's it's more making devices that have um, molecular programming capabilities and intelligence of molecules. Um, but yeah, that's kind of, sorry, that was a long <laughs> explanation how I got into molecular programming. Yeah, I think, um, I, I can't speak for all of us, but definitely for me, the medical applications of um, molecular programming in the future um, really excite and, and drive me. Um, what, where would you say we are kind of today? Like, wh what would you say the timeline is, in your opinion, for all of these different milestones? Yeah, yeah, I think we have a lot of exciting developments right now of, for biomedical applications. And in, in when it comes to uh, using molecular programming to um, clinical purposes, I, I think the most exciting example for me, was uh, Sean Douglas, uh, um, a paper from Sean Douglas and Ido and George Church on this clamshell robot that um, basically um, a simple molecular computation, an AND gate or an OR gate, you can program two locks to open two different um, molecular signals on the surface of the cells um, and open up to expose this um, molecule that can trigger apoptosis to cell death. Um, and so for me, it, <laughs> uh, it still remains the most exciting demonstration so far. And then that's a science paper in 2010. And I don't feel like we, we have anything more complex than that in, in the field. <laughs> and what we, and of course, there is a lot of developments uh, since then. People study, we, we need a lot of fundamental studies, what happens to DNA structures, how to make the most stable in, in biological media, 
in many groups around the world working on on, on that. Um, and there there are a lot of fundamental studies um, that contribute. Um, uh, we we still <laughs> probably <laughs> a decade away from you know it, at least from clinically approved uh, uh, DNA nanotechnology. <laughs> Um, but I, I, I think it's 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 a it's one of the next next big steps for DNA nanotech is to make huge difference in medical practice because the capabilities and just you know friendliness of DNA and, and programming and just the right scale because we can build now structures that can interface very well with the cell surface um, and have enough complexity. Um, to to beat any any existing therapies, maybe except for T cells, but you know uh, T cell CAR T cells therapy, but it's it's very expensive. <laughs> uh, it's still very hard. Um, yeah, I think DNA nanotech will have a lot of applications very soon in in biomedical practice. So as far as those biomedical applications, what do you think are kind of the next steps we need to get from that 2010 Sean Douglas paper to the decade away um, FDA approval of a DNA nanotech-based uh, delivery device? Like, is there anything else in the academic space that needs to be done to prove this concept? Or is at this point, is it kind of a somebody needs to figure out the large-scale commercial production of these structures and do the pharmacokinetics of it? Uh, that's a good question, and I think it's both. <laughs> both the, we need more um, fundamental studies in 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 our community, um, and also more translational studies. And we need people to actually try and do to work more on this kind of tedious translational stuff. Maybe conceptually not so exciting, but uh, and and it's very expensive. <laughs> uh, because you need a lot of you know animal studies maybe large animal studies but we need someone who can take those constructs um that the community developed and and try to see what, how they behave in all these complex environments and more carefully zoom in on specific type of diseases and i know there are already several startups in in that area and they're working on this <laughs> Uh, with with private funding, um, and um, yeah, we're we're going there. I mean, it, the both things that you you mentioned are happening both in academia in and kind of industry. Is your lab trying to push molecular programming to the application side, or your um, or to more um, com- to try to commercialize those devices you build, or you're more focused on the um, basic science or proof of principle side? Um, we we are working on both. Uh, we are trying to develop some new concepts, uh, but also we are trying to uh, work on something that is um, has a potential at least of being practical. But we not really like just want it to be practical. We we want it to be conceptually <laughs> interesting for us, <laughs> and we um, I mean just. We we don't do something for the sake of being practical, uh, uh, but <laughs> we try to select projects that uh, combine being uh, the, the the properties of being fundamentally exciting and at the same time uh, can be translated to to real life applications. Because you know I I feel like 
<laughs> a lot of science is very exciting and, and we can we have enough ideas to to also focus on something that give back to society that <laughs> whose <laughs> tax <laughs> uh, money we use to do research i mean who wouldn't like to live a little bit longer and healthier and uh, build use devices that compute much faster so on that note one of the big reasons we invited you on the podcast today is because you're a, a relatively new pi who um is very kind of prominent in the field and so we wanted to hear your experience uh starting up a lab and starting to develop your own uh, scientific questions. So can you first tell us a little bit about um, kind of what the focus of your lab is and what the big overarching vision is for you? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm far from prominent PI. I, I just started my lab in um, uh, July last year. And, you know, I feel we, we're still building the lab. <laughs> Uh, we're still waiting for shipment of some equipment, and it's 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 been uh, somewhat challenging to start it during pandemic, and also in a big university like Berkeley, <laughs> where things don't get done as quickly as you know at some private schools like Caltech. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, the the focus um, of my lab is uh, try to take all these developments in molecular programming field and embed this kind of molecular intelligence into non non dna um building blocks um because you know dna is kind of boring from physics viewpoint i mean you can do a lot of interest in thermodynamics and biophysics but you know it doesn't have you know conductivity of carbon nanotubes so it doesn't have much optical properties to talk about um and and so the one big direction is how do we take those building blocks, these interesting uh, um, physical characteristics, high-performance building blocks like quantum dots, uh, metals, semiconductors, and embed molecular recognition capabilities into them. And and the reason we want to do that is we want to for them to self-assemble into larger devices, um, complex devices, not, not just you know periodic crystals. That, that many groups have demonstrated so far, but we want something that has, you know, thousands of uniquely addressable building blocks, you know, something like SST tiles, so DNA origami, but imagine instead of, instead of each staple, you have a different building block <laughs> and then and not periodic and unbounded crystals like sodium chloride, there's something finite size and you can precisely control the shape and physical properties. So, yeah, so we basically try to develop a new nanotechnology not specifically focusing on any any device but we want to um, uh, provide kind of general tool for community to use to do nanofabrication that is not possible with <laughs> top-down fabrication because you know many people think that dna nanotech is going to replace semiconductor manufacturing and you know tsmc intel factory that's probably not going to happen um, i'm quite sure it's not going to happen so this <laughs> lithography and you know top-down fabrication is probably the most <laughs> sophisticated technology that humanity ever developed and uh, the, the precision with which and fidelity and um, low error rates that people can achieve in semiconductor manufacturing is not achievable with DNA nanotech. But DNA nanotech has some unique niche 
and molecular programming in general um, that that traditional top-down fabrication cannot achieve and and we, we are focusing on on a suit of those um, technologies that um, uniquely enabled by um, molecular programming and like also so i mentioned self-assembly um into new nanotechnology and also integrating um this new technology with existing cmos so top-down lithography and also <laughs> uh, we're interested in uh, various uh, <laughs> i would say nanorobotics uh, <laughs> um, directions where we we try to combine also high performance materials like magnetic particles for non-invasive non um, control and imaging of the robots inside the body. So when you, um, you, you, do you envision some of these kind of interfacing with lithography? Is that what you were saying? And kind of what, what particular things could we do with this? Is this to build kind of specialized structures that um, kind of lithography doesn't do well with? Yeah. So, you know, lithography is very good with working with silicon and you know cmos compatible processes something that you can um, carve out out of silicon or something you can deposit on the top of silicon and you know you typically you just um, spin a photoresist uh, photosensitive layer then you draw something with it with um, with light or e-beam and and then you deposit something you know, strip photoresist and you repeat this process many many times until you get this structure and so the materials that are compatible with this um, approach are um, kind of limited. Um, um, and ideally, would, we would like to be able to, and also precision is somewhat limited, um, uh, um, and scalability, because you know you have a wafer scale. I mean, although now you can <laughs> do many, many wafers <laughs> per, per minute in a state-of-the-art um, um, tools. Uh, so we want to develop self-assembly in, in 3D, um, um, and and we want to use um, dielectrics and uh, something like uh, that has that is transparent to the light, doesn't absorb light very much. One one concept that we're very interested in is inverse design. So I don't know if you've heard of inverse design. <laughs> it's it's different in different fields, but there is inverse designs. In photonics, um, they allow to to have an arbitrary um, optical transformation of light. You can imagine it could be something like broadband light, so white light uh, spectrum comes in, um, and you have this tiny um, micron scale. It should be about a couple wavelengths of light cube, um, and depending on dielectric distribution. With, within this cube we can have almost arbitrary transformation of light for example it could sort um, this light into rgb components so that's so-called bare filter so it's something that splits white light into red green and blue light and you know we're all using it right now and with our color cameras image sensors um, and typical bare filters absorb two thirds of the photons so <laughs> With inverse design, it's possible to to build a Bayer filter that um, utilizes almost every single photon. Um, so in theory, people show that you can get 95% color sorting without losing any photons. 
But no one can fabricate something like this for for visible spectrum um, because you actually need. <laughs> so I, I mentioned dielectric distribution, dielectric constant distribution with precision of about um, 50, 60 nanometers. So you need um, 50, 60 nanometer building block that is. Um, and you actually need just two of them to make an arbitrary function, so digital material. So there is also a concept that had been proposed about five years ago. Um, so you need just two building blocks, but you need to precise, precisely arrange them in this micron scale uh, um, um, cube. And you, you need about, you know, if you calculate, if it's 60 nanometers, it's about 5,000 building blocks. <laughs> and uh, but they have to be non-DNA. They have to be something like um, silicon and titanium dioxide, something that doesn't absorb the light. So you cannot use silicon that is compatible with uh, CMOS. Um, and um, yeah, no one was able to build this, even though in theory it has been predicted a while ago. Um, and so um, people built something like this in, in microwave, where you can use just a 3D printer and you can use polymer and air to different polymers with different refraction indices but these are like centimeter scale stuff you cannot really put it <laughs> in a as as a uh, as a pixel in your camera uh a very big camera um so yeah and and cmos fabrication lithography cannot make anything like this potentially you could use layer by layer um, um fabrication but again it's not possible with currently uh, materials com compatible with uh, lithography. So that's just one example. But you can also think about um, uh, optical computing because you can build a logic gate, uh, uh, optical logic gate using the same inverse design approach. And you can do computation really, really fast and very energy efficiently <laughs> with light <laughs> compared to electrons. And you can make an objects basically invisible and you, you can have a lot of interesting uh, um, uh, functions. <laughs> um, yeah, and this is a very kind of computationally <laughs> extent, expensive process because uh, you basically solve it in a direct way. You just, you know, you have this function um, and you optimize your voxel one by one, kind of gradient descent, and you solve in Maxwell equations <laughs> for each of the distribution of the voxels in this uh, uh, volume uh, and and that's <laughs> so we have um, somebody who is very good at this in in the lab <laughs> and 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 so Durham did found a way to to to, to optimize the structures but it takes takes forever <laughs> even on supercomputers uh, and you know now we're developing a way to embed information to those nanoscale voxels and self-assemble them you know, kind of by putting DNA suit on <laughs> non-DNA um, voxels. So it sounds kind of like it's a incredibly complicated process to go from, I want to make a optical computer or a optical transistor or an op or any of these kind of metamaterial structures to, I need to find somebody who knows how to make the programs to solve these Maxwell equations. I need to find people who know DNA uh, nanofabrications to position these things. Um, how have you gone about like building that team? Um, have you? I guess. How, let me rephrase that. How have you gone from the initial ideation of this is what I want to build to building the team that you're now attempting to build these structures with? 
Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, I guess my uh, my lab is very small, and I wanted to to for this kind of interdisciplinary projects, I wanted someone who who has different expertise from me. I couldn't afford to 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 hire another person with DNA nanotechnology <laughs> expertise. So I am the the one who kind of is a molecular programming programmer in our lab, even though I don't really program. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, first uh, few people I uh, um, I managed to attract uh, are all from different fields. Um, so first postdoc, um, very talented postdoc from, she got her PhD in MEMS. Uh, <laughs> and so she's developing actually ways to integrate uh, self-assembled structures with uh, um, uh, CMOS and you know her whole PhD was just in clean room. You know she's like extremely e efficient with all this proficient with the tools in in, in nanofabrication, microfabrication. Um, um, uh, also, also another postdoc is purely chemist, so she's a specialist in nanoparticle synthesis, um, and another very talented undergrad so i we started working during pandemic and i gave him project okay make this wireframe so type of a suit that we can put on dna nanoparticles and it turned out to be quite hard to design this wireframe suit um, and he wrote the whole software uh, uh you know just in three months and you know he's, he keeps developing and he's like he's a wizard programmer and so I mean, everyone knows much more than me in, in the lab. And I, I kind of try to show them the beauty of molecular programming, maybe get excited about some molecular programming concepts, but everyone is has a unique strengths and talent. Um, <clears throat> and some people, you know, they spend different <laughs> disciplines, uh, like Durham, he's uh, designing inverse design <laughs> uh, molecular dynamics and you know artificial intelligence everything <laughs> so uh, i i, I kind of got lucky with uh, first few people who joined my lab um, and uh, they can embrace this uh, collaborative uh, environment where everyone is uh, is very good at, at something and people talk uh, to come up with uh, new nanotechnologies and also yeah for for many grad students uh I feel my 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 philosophy is kind of try to to get people who obsessed with something and very excited about some idea and so this is a this has a caveat that many times I don't want to work on on my ideas and this is totally fine um, I, I'm I'm the, just want to help them to maybe. I mean, there is a reason why they joined my lab because they see that potentially molecular programming and self-assembly can help them achieve their dream. So we have uh, the very first graduate student joined my lab. So Benjamin, he he's a MEMS person. He got his undergraduate and master's in electrical engineering, computer science, and at, at MIT, and he's interested in brain-machine interface because uh, you know. <clears throat> He played hockey, and you know he got um, brain injury, and so since since then he wanted to kind of wait to debug 
electronic circuits of the brain. <laughs> and he realized that with <laughs> existing approaches, uh, we cannot really scalably <laughs> address every neuron. We cannot even address, you know, 100 neurons <laughs> in a specific way because you typically have to drill a hole in the skull and insert an electrode to stimulate neurons. So he thought maybe nanorobotics, molecular programming, DNA nanotech can give it to. And so he's now working on a very exciting project that he came up by himself completely. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, helping in any way I can, <laughs> but, you know, he's totally uh, self-driven and, you know, it's, I'm, I'm very lucky to have people like this joining my life. <laughs> not necessarily uh, buying my agenda. <laughs> so how did you get to this point? Like back when you were a postdoc, did you just wake up one morning and like, I'm ready to start a lab now? And then, or, or how did that happen? And when you did feel that you were ready, what was the process from the idea of I'd like a lab to where you are now? Uh, yeah, I mean, I always thought I wanted to be a faculty and because I really enjoyed doing research, I would say probably in high school, I realized that I want to be a scientist. <laughs> uh, I was just not, um, I, you know, I, I, I spent, um, a lot of time in, in my postdoc and <laughs> much longer than typically people spend, you know, I did three postdocs and three totally different areas and also very different from my PhD, looking for the ways to, to build artificial life <laughs> yeah. and also at the same time making an impact on society. And uh, um, yeah, I, uh, as, as I mentioned, being in Lulu's lab, Lulu Chen's lab um, was transformational for me because um, um, I kind of finally was able to acquire the skills and also learn a lot from Lulu on, on, on how to, to start a lab because, you know, I was the first person who joined her lab. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I've been on a job market for three years. It took me a while to, to find this position. And uh, yeah, I just could not imagine myself doing something else than <laughs> I like teaching. <laughs> I, I, I realized actually that I like uh, writing grants, <laughs> although I, I would like to, to spend a little bit more time with with people in the lab <laughs> because, you know, in, in the first year, you, you have to spend a lot of time writing grants. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoy <laughs> academic life. I, I didn't realize that I, I could I was not sure if I <laughs> be, would be successful, but you know now I kind of got a couple of grants, and I don't know if still if I can write papers. <laughs> uh, so we'll find out. <laughs> Congratulations on the grants! I'm wondering, um, do you have any plans about how you spent your grant money? Um, like uh, you started your lab, and you need to purchase a lot of stuff. And how was your decision making process? regarding what you purchase and why not? <laughs> uh, yeah, when you write grants, <laughs> typically uh, you you uh, can hire people. Yeah, so I'm in, investing in people. So all all the grants go to fund people. <laughs> and, you know, I, I try to use my startup funds for materials. <laughs> and, you know, I had to spend <laughs> much more than I expected for lab renovation. And so I need to keep raising more more money because you know 
two new grad students coming joining the lab in September, and they're both international, and international students cost a lot <laughs> uh, in Berkeley, at least. Um, yeah, but it's yeah, just almost everything goes into <laughs> funding people, and I think this is the most important <laughs> um, uh, investment. <laughs> but we also realized that we. <laughs> One way to simplify life of graduate students is, and postdocs is to automate some processes like tedious pipetting. So the very first instrument that I bought is a mixing robot, you know, those echo ultrasonic mixing robots. Um, and, you know, for me, I, I spend a lot of time being a robot in a lab. <laughs> and it's, it's you know, this Mona Lisa it took me and Philip, who was a grad student when I was in Lula's lab, one week to mix and you know we made some mistakes because you know it's like ten thousands of strands you have to pipette you know 64 tiles to mix them again and you know now mixing robot can make can do this in 30 minutes <laughs> with almost no mistakes i mean no really mistakes <laughs> and so yeah I, I didn't want my students to struggle through that <laughs> being robots and and you know i got this this is my big first splurge <laughs> How would you say that having that mixing robot um, has changed the way you approach research without having to do the kind of the robotic parts by hand? How, how has that changed the way that you guys can approach problems? It totally changed our life and let us try many more ideas. And that's why I like molecular programming too, because it almost always works, <laughs> you know, with and it takes, uh, you know, just a couple of days for a new design iteration. You Sometimes less, you, you can... Anil Yorigami, look at it in the evening and by FM or TEM. And as I mentioned, when I was doing it in this covalent chemistry, <laughs> yeah, you spend, you know, a year synthesizing a molecule. And if you're lucky enough to get it in a, uh, enough quantity to study it by different techniques, <laughs> it, it still doesn't form a complicated structure. <laughs> but with molecular programming, you can program really really complex structure and if you pay attention to kind of very reasonable design rules it works <laughs> and you can test out many many designs and <laughs> whatever you are capable of you know afm and you know, looking by various other techniques like fluorescence <laughs> so you spent a lot of your first year working on grants are you finding that time is opening up and you're able to do more kind of research or in your position, are you finding yourself mostly at kind of the admin level and writing <laughs> grants and looking after your lab? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm still I'm still writing grants. I still need to get more money. I mean, um, we can kind of breeze a little bit more, but <laughs> yeah, I just have so many ideas. I feel like very exciting. So we, we, need, we need to hire a few more people and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and it's besides grant writing, it's also a lot of dealing with uh, administrative things, <laughs> uh, like you know, serving on committee, and also teaching takes a lot of time, especially because I'm kind of biologist and chemist by background, but yeah, <laughs> I am now in the engineering department, so <laughs> and I, I I had to teach for I I was teaching for the first time in this semester. Um, I, I was teaching nanofabrication, and I think most of the students knew mo much more than me at the beginning of the class. 
I think now we know about the same amount, <laughs> but you know, somehow I, I managed to teach this class and it, it took a lot of time <laughs> uh, preparing the lectures. Did you expect that this would be the way your, your time was divided or have there been any things which you were surprised by when, start, when going into this position? Yeah, I suspected that I would spend less time <laughs> doing science. And, you know, I, I still want to go to the lab. I mean, yeah, yesterday I went to the lab to make some couple of origamis just because everyone is so busy with their project, I cannot really ask anyone <laughs> to try my new pet idea. Um, so I just did it myself. But I, I was, yeah, I was hoping that that I, I spend more, more time talking to my students. <laughs> But uh, um, especially because everyone is from different background. <laughs> but yeah, and, and I'm still waiting for some rich person coming and donating us a lot of money so I can do more science. <laughs> do you have any advice for anyone who's kind of going in, who's starting out doing the same thing? Um, yeah. Yeah, if you if you let's say join in molecular programming field and you like feel curious about it, but you know, uh, you think you're not prepared enough, you know, let me tell you my experience when I when I joined Lulu Chen's group at Caltech, I I, I felt like the most stupid person in in a group. You know, everyone is like proving computability theorems and you know doing some crazy origami design and like I don't understand anything I, I didn't understand like 90% of the things people talked about group meetings because you know so we had this joint meeting with Eric Winfrey and Paul Rodemont um, labs and, and I'm like just a chemist you know yeah I can synthesize this molecule but this is absolutely useless knowledge and so the learning curve was very steep and I felt like I initially for first year i don't belong everyone is way smarter and then i'm like molecular programmer i cannot even program in python i mean <laughs> i can write some simple code but not, nothing like people can do in in this field <laughs> and yeah it, it took some time to <laughs> realize that you know there is a niche for everyone and so don't don't feel intimidated if you want to join the field if it looks very interesting to you but you you scared <laughs> uh i mean also it's important yeah yeah talking about advice <laughs> i think it's very important to find a good advisor <laughs> but you know also realize that uh, it's no matter what advisor you have you 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 can succeed <laughs> i mean i as i mentioned i was very fortunate that that lulu took me on <laughs> uh, as a as a first person in her lab and I learned a great deal from her and I feel she's the most amazing advisor and scientist and a person. And um, so one advice I can tell you, join Lulu's lab. <laughs> but there are many other great PIs. Uh, and, you know, uh, what other advice? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel like there is, a, there is a place and space for everyone, whether you're a physicist, chemist, engineer in in molecular programming field doing in in any in any field <laughs> kind of on that same note how would you say your your perspective has changed as you've switched from advisee to advisor and as postdoc to pi especially how it's kind of changed your 
uh, interactions with the rest of the field now that it's it's PI to PI and you're interacting a lot more with the funding agencies themselves? Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like when I was a postdoc, a grad student, I was much more aggressive in criticizing other people. And, you know, if I feel like that it's somewhat not logical what they're proposing, it's some, somewhat dishonest, I call them out. But now I am much more <laughs> timid. So I I don't know what <laughs> someone said, uh, kick up and kiss down. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, these people in my lab, uh, I, I, I'm trying to be as supportive as, as possible. Uh, but, you know, people who hire me in hierarchy, I try, <laughs> uh, try to challenge them. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's been now a, a PI. Um, I, I try to kind of instill agency in everyone. I, I am far from hierarchical. I mean, everyone has their own project. I don't have hierarchy in a lab. A, a grad student, an undergraduate student, and postdoc and me, we are kind of on the same level. Um, although it's, of course, not possible to completely <laughs> create this. Uh, um, but um, um, yeah, um, everyone has their own project. and that I hope they like, and I try to instill the, the, the agency in people feel like, well, they actually driving the project and I'm just helping them to, to succeed. And at the same time, we try to, you know, I, if, if, if I, it was my will, I would work on very few papers and <laughs> some transformational research but you know as a since grad students and um, everybody else need publications to 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 advance their careers so it it really changed my way um to (laughs) to guide those projects you know if i if if i'm the only one working on this project okay that's fine i I can take five years to implement this idea but (laughs) students they need publications to get you know to the grad school to to get scholarships and and move on with their life get the jobs <laughs> and so i'm trying to create uh, at least you know three different projects one is kind of that gives them a publication quickly uh, and the other one uh, very ambitious you know if, if they can get it it's you know they can get any kind of job but at the same time change the field and, and something in, in between this those two <laughs> That's a really interesting idea to do kind of like fast projects versus slow projects. Um, how do you like structure that in such a way? Do you, do you try to make the fast projects build into the the slower projects or is it kind of more of a, they're, they're, they're two separate things and it's more, you just got to get the fast projects out for the papers and then the slow projects where the really like interesting science happens. Um, I let I let um, a person decide uh, what those three, uh, sometimes you know four or maybe two projects are, um, and for everyone it's different depending on on their unique expertise and and their interests. Um, it I let it naturally evolve. Don't really have any kind of hardwired thing. It's 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 different for everyone. 
something that they're excited about. For me, it's it's very important that people kind of passionate about something. And you know, of course, it comes and goes in in the waves, but I'm kind of in many cases just a cheerleader. Where do you want to take your lab? Kind of, you know, I guess at the moment you're more short-term focus and just trying to get the grants in trying to build your lab trying to get all the equipment but where do you see it going in kind of five ten years well what we would really like to create is a new nanotechnology that uh, many people can use that um, would allow people to create very complex devices in in a test tube so you um, don't really need to create complicated processes and masks and do lithography and because and lithography is kind of very inaccessible i mean there are some commercial foundries but typically you need to have a lot of expertise and you need to confine to those rules that can evolve <laughs> almost similar to to, to nature <laughs> Uh, not necessarily, you know, I, I mentioned that, you know, I want to build a new life form that uses um, modular design principles. But, you know, if you look at the current semiconductor industry, it's still somewhat defined by the low resistance pathway. <laughs> and, and yeah, so we want to create this DNA, maybe not, not DNA-based, but self-assembly-based nanotechnology that, people can use to build very complex devices that are not accessible with top-down lithography. <laughs> and, you know, I, I kind of realized that it, it, uh, it will take me much longer than my lifetime to, to come up with a new life form. <laughs> and uh, I, I just want to... I, I feel the, the field, our field is already ready to... Um, come up with technologies that could be transformational for industry. Um, maybe not to build a new life form, but to build complex intelligent devices, devices with, with arbitrary optical or electronic functions, um, devices that can reconfigure, that can evolve Maybe not replicate. I mean, replication is not really self-replication is not necessary. We just need the replications because we can we can know the structure <laughs> um, uh, by measuring it, um, and then we can just pro pro um, prototype and and build many more copies of, of this structure that works very well. But I want to kind of borrow some of the ideas from biology and directed evolution, but do evolution towards arbitrary function, not something that only accessible to nature because you know the synthetic biology of course we can already do directed evolution you know Nobel Prize to Francis Arnold and, and others um, we can come up with catalytic uh, reactions that far from natural uh, and and I want to take this concept and apply it to devices where we can evolve towards, uh, optimize towards uh, arbitrary function, you know, whether it's photonic performance or electronic function. And for that, I think molecular programming principles are very powerful because we can build reconfigurable devices. <laughs> Do you think DNA is the, the chemistry that's going to achieve all this? Or are there other 
either macromolecules or other molecular programming chemistries that you think are going to be more the fu- more of the future? Um, that's a good question. I think DNA can already do um, most of it. Uh, but having said that, I think there is a room for new DNA-like polymers. Um, because, you know, DNA has some limitation when it comes to in vivo or industrial applications like stability um, and functionality. You know, after all, nature decided to use proteins to build us <laughs> mostly. Well, many other materials too, but I mean, one of the ideas that that I, I have had for a while is to create a new digital polymer that has capabilities of DNA but overcomes its um, limitations. Um, and I want to use kind of peptide-like polymer that that um, based on amino acids, but but can use this simple principles like AT and GC interactions. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but I'm still waiting for a student who is excited about this project. <laughs> right now, I don't really have anyone with this expertise. So I have some ideas, but I no one really to test it. <laughs> Do you um, anticipate how your group is like um, change over time? Or you have any prediction of that or not? <laughs> uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I, I think... <laughs> Uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping that we we can get some um, interesting, at least proof of concept studies that would um, get people and finding, funding agencies to invest more into molecular programming because I feel like this the field has so much potential, and I I know there are many many other groups uh, who are. Ma- trying to make DNA nanotechnology industrially practical. And I'm, I'm very excited about this. <laughs> uh, and at the same time, I am very interested in continuing just curiosity-driven research, like building new life forms. <laughs> uh, and hopefully, after I deliver some proof of concepts, I, I, I get to work on that and get some people who are excited about this kind of things to join my lab. I know your lab is kind of focusing more on the nanofabrication side and things like that, but do you have any plans to collaborate with like buildercell.org or, or organizations like that? Yeah, I actually went to a couple of workshops that Kate Adamala organized, and, and I think it's it's a, also a very nice community. Um, and very big communities, somehow even bigger, I feel like, than molecular programming. And, you know, very early when I joined, when I started studying chemistry, I was very interested in origin of life. And I was, you know, my, my hobby was writing this electron pushing reaction mechanisms, or how do you come up with all this uh, purine pyrimidine bases from uh, HCN, and, you know, yeah, found a way, actually. <laughs> and I when i was in grade eight uh not even high school and then i found this mechanism in the in the, uh, in the textbook of heterocyclic chemistry uh, but you know what i feel yeah like as i explained nature is not very rationally designed you know you know we have this laryngeal nerve right that controls our speech that goes all the way down to the aorta and comes back 
Uh, so this is such a waste of wiring, you know, from engineering point, you know, I, I, if you could just, you know, nip it, you know, and reconnect it on the, on the top, you know, that would much, make much more sense. But, you know, since we evolved from fish, <laughs> we, we had to leave this with this wiring, uh, wasted wiring, you know, and if you giraffe, you know, this is like 10 feet of <laughs> wasted wiring. And, you know, there are many other examples of kind of, very bad design. We have a blind spot in our eye. We eat and breathe through the same passageway, which is a major choking hazard, <laughs> killing a lot of people. Um, in nanoscale, you have this Rubisco enzyme that is like the most abundant enzyme in the world because that transforms carbon dioxide into oxygen. But it's like the laziest enzyme possible because you know, sometimes it picks up oxygen <laughs> and glucose and converts them to carbon dioxide. It's very inefficient, but, you know, nature just took the path of just scaling up the, the mass, biomass of this protein instead of optimizing it. <laughs> and, you know, nature, whatever works, you know, if, if it works just better than everything, anything else, it's fine. <laughs> and so I, I feel like we, we can come achieve much more flexibility in designing uh, artificial life, build, like building a new type of cell by letting go the traditional synthetic biology components like enzymes and DNA maybe, or using DNA not in a traditional sense, <laughs> but for programming the function in the non-biological function. So if then 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 we can actually find our transistor, resistor, and capacitor that allows us to build very very complex, but at this yet modular design that with unlimited complexity. Uh, but right now, I I don't feel like any community found those building blocks. As you know, synthetic circuits are still quite limited in complexity. <laughs> And, you know, supramolecular chemistry, if you look at the Nobel Prizes, it's way below what DNA nanotech can, can reach. So I, 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 I bet that molecular programming will come up eventually with some um, building blocks that could be used to construct um, lifelike behaviors. Although I don't feel like it's important to replicate existing life. <laughs> We just need to come up with something that is as complex and we can build superhumans that can live longer and better and have an option of not dying. Do you think we can achieve that in our lifetimes? Um, I think we can extend our life enough to, to, to <laughs> with, with modern medicine to, to achieve that. So you're you're working in the Bay Area where there's all kinds of biotech startups working on both traditional pharmaceuticals as well as, you know, lifespan extension things. Have you gotten a chance to like really interface with that community since you moved to Berkeley? Or is this, you're kind of like up on the hillside there working on your own little thing? I haven't really integrated. I mean, I just kind of moved to Bay Area recently and yeah, some, some people um, reached out, um, some people who run venture capital firms and they they had their um, ideas on how to do things um, not necessarily based on on science and i i gave them honest feedback uh, of how i would do that and there are definitely a lot of 
people who want to extend their life in in the Bay Area. Um, lots of um, wealthy people who want to do that. Uh, but uh, I'm not directly working on life extension research. I have some ideas on how to create organs uh, and to replace our organs and you know maybe one by one as as our organs fail based on self-assembly but you know now stem cells rather than um, inorganic building blocks with interest in physics um, and and they seem to want to find some very specific ideas like senescent cells something among the most hottest uh, research lines in in molecular biology um, and they feel like that if they put enough money into that that will work um, i have a little bit different approach i <laughs> i i i explain what the problems are and when, how i want to solve them and you know if they want to invest they can but i haven't really <laughs> um talked to many people about that you know we're just starting out <laughs> but yeah i'm excited to be in the bay area because there are certainly a lot of opportunities to make impact for both industrial you know um electronics computing computer science and 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 um biomedical research <laughs> and we just started establishing collaborations where we use uh, dna nanotechnology to <laughs> um do various in vivo constructs i feel like it's 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 very easy you know sometimes for for scientists to maybe over promise and take people money and they get um disappointed for me i i, I want to make sure that we have a good underlying technology before before we commercialize it before we ask um those people you know, be also full of examples of failure when people overpromise and underdeliver. And I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I want to make sure we have a good transistor, resistor, and capacitor before before we make a new human out of them. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Greg. Stay tuned to our newsletter or Slack for details on our next podcast episodes. And thanks for listening.